This is The Extraordinary Story, a podcast about the life of Christ. Jesus Christ, God himself, entered the confusing maze that is our world to show us who we are and to give us his cross as a ladder up and out. This is his story and ours, The Extraordinary Story. Brought to you by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Written and hosted by Tom Hoops. Today we're going to talk about one of my favorite Bible passages. I actually feel like I say that a lot, but there are two Bible passages that have kind of changed the way I approach spirituality and life, and this is definitely one of them. It's the woman with the hemorrhage, which is sandwiched in between the beginning and end of the story of the raising of the daughter of Jairus. And we're going to read both of them, and we'll get right to it. This is my favorite version of the story. The story appears in Matthew and Luke also, but here it is from the Gospel of Mark. Well, the first part of it anyway. I'll read the first part, and then I'll read the second part a little later on. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him, and he stayed close to the sea. One of the synagogue officials named Jairus came forward. Seeing him, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, saying, My daughter is at the point of death. Please come, lay your hands on her, that she may get well and live. He went off with him, and a large crowd followed him and pressed upon him. There was a woman afflicted with hemorrhages for 12 years. She had suffered greatly at the hands of many doctors and had spent all that she had, yet she was not helped but only grew worse. She had heard about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. She said, if I but touch his clothes, I shall be cured. Immediately her flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Jesus, aware at once that power had gone out from him, turned around in the crowd and asked, Who has touched my clothes? But his disciples said to Jesus, You see how the crowd is pressing upon you, and yet you ask, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. The woman, realizing what had happened to her, approached in fear and trembling. She fell down before Jesus and told him the whole truth. He said to her, Daughter, your faith has saved you. Go in peace and be cured of your affliction. While he was still speaking, people from the synagogue official's house arrived and said, Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher any longer? I love the Mark gospel version of this story, especially for reasons I'll be sharing in a minute. But of course, in Mark's version, the story starts immediately after what came before it. So it goes like this. First, Jesus tells parables from a boat. Then he crosses the sea and gets hit by a storm. Once he's on the other side in the Gentile lands, he has to exercise the garrison demoniac and turns a town's pig herd into floating pig carcasses and then leaves when the townspeople demand it. Then in Mark's version, this is the very next thing that happens. So it begins... When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered in, and he stayed close to the sea. I love Mark's depiction of Jesus as this man of constant action, where even his sleep is interrupted by people who are freaking out, and then as soon as he gets back to his home territory, a crowd has already gathered to meet him. Maybe they were tipped off by those other boats we heard about when we talked about the story of the storm. At any rate, Jesus has to stay close to the shore 
when he gets off the boat because of this huge crowd. But Jesus doesn't mind crowds. He's moved by crowds. He wants his work to be seen by people, or at least in certain circumstances, as we'll see. Anyway, Jairus comes and braves the crowd. We learn that he is, quote, one of the synagogue officials, end quote. So this is a big deal. This is an official Jewish leader, the kind of person who is likely to hold back when it comes to Jesus. But he falls at Jesus' feet, or as Luke has it, he throws himself at Jesus' feet. It's significant that this stature of man is willing to give that kind of public obeisance to Jesus. You can see why. His daughter is sick at the point of death, and he is desperate. He's desperate, and he's in a hurry. The typical way a guy like Jairus would approach a guy like Jesus of Nazareth would be discreetly after hours like Nicodemus did, so that as few people as possible know what he's up to. But he has no time to wait and send out feelers through his connections with the disciples and work something out. He walks right up to him in front of a crowd and begs him to come now, right now. His daughter's at the very hour of death. Please, please come. I'm desperate. I can imagine how he must have felt. If you've ever had a sick child or a sick spouse, you know how he felt also. If you have to go to the hospital, every single delay irritates you. If someone is looking at their phone instead of turning or getting going at a light, you become unglued with rage. Or not so much rage as a kind of a deep desperation. Come on, please. My daughter is dying. Jairus must have been grateful and relieved that Jesus understands this because Jesus heads out immediately with him. So that's where we get to my favorite passage of the gospel. It was a gospel story that captured my attention early on as I started to take my faith seriously. I've always identified so much with this woman who had a hemorrhage for 12 years. Here she is. She begins every year suffering this problem, goes through each season suffering it, and closes out each year with the same problem, suffering in this terrible way that is at the same time terribly private and terribly public because this kind of bleeding made her unclean by Jewish law. In other words, she was existentially unwell. I think of her condition as a kind of icon of humanity's predicament. There she is, looking for all the world like nothing's wrong, but she has this hidden condition that has become her controlling identity. Who is she? She is the woman with the hemorrhage. This happens to us, too. Who am I? We are each this person who is just fine for all the world to see, but each of us has a hemorrhage, a hidden wound that in our mind identifies us. We think of ourselves as the man who can't control his addiction, or as the child who was abused, something that is over and shouldn't define us, but which is not over and always defines us. Maybe everyone else sees us as the woman who has it all together, but we know ourselves as the woman who is overwhelmed by stress. Everyone knows us as the angry man, but we know ourselves as the man who thinks his sin is unforgivable. Or maybe it's depression, maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's just that we don't seem to be successful at anything. Maybe it's that our success has left us empty. We are each in some way that woman with a hemorrhage. And what Mark says is such a succinct summing up of everything we have each faced in life. She had suffered greatly at the hands of many doctors and had spent all that she had and yet was not helped but only grew worse. Doesn't that describe each one of us? 
We've suffered at the hands of many doctors, medical doctors, psychological doctors, self-help doctors, doctors of philosophy, doctors of literature. We have tried everything the world has to give us, and we're exhausted. All these things have failed us. We thought we had our addiction beat 12 years ago, but it came back. Then we had hope 10 years ago, nine years ago, five years ago, but we're stuck still. We spent our time and money trying to feed it and spent our time and money trying to fix it. We got the best the public schools had to give us, tolerance training and being told that we're special over and over again, but without any reason why. But we still feel like we can just sum ourselves up by our fault. Counseling helped, but the old existential ache came back. We tried self-help techniques, time management, decluttering, exercise, diet. We tried focusing on work, but everything seemed to only make it worse in the end. The problem is we were taught that religion was a guilt trip we didn't need and that the key to happiness was to reject all of that. But we all have to worship something, and so some people turn to horoscopes or new age, or we just expect too much out of everything we do try. We try to fill that void or at least try to mask the wound. We did this with eating, with fashion, with gadgets, with video games, social media, music, sports, binge-watching shows, politics. We love the euphoric release we get from drugs or pornography or sex or wine or whatever it is. You try it all and none of it works. Not only does it not work, it leaves you feeling even worse. Then, if you're like the woman with the hemorrhage in this story, you heard about faith and did nothing about it, maybe. Maybe you discounted Jesus out of hand. That's something weak-minded people do. People who want an imaginary friend turn to Jesus. You're better than that. And so 12 years go by. Then, one day you got so desperate, you were ready to try almost anything. You are ready to make a plunge. You decide that your desire to be whole is greater than your fear of religion, your fear of Jesus, your fear of being vulnerable, your fear of looking like an idiot, your fear of admitting that there's a mystery in the world that you don't understand. In a way, the woman is in the same place as Jairus. He's in a hurry, and so is she. Twelve years is enough. Twelve years of bleeding. Twelve years of hiding. Twelve years of feeling that you're less than everyone else. Twelve years of feeling like the ultimate misfit. 12 years of talking to those people who smile and give you unsatisfactory answers for your suffering. So she pushes up behind him in the crowd and touches the hem of his clothes. And she feels within her body that she is cured. The bleeding stops. She's restored. She is found. She is whole. She has touched the one who is the conduit of divinity. He is the place where heaven and earth meet, where heaven invades earth. She was lost in the maze of life, lost, confused, finding no way out, and here in Jesus Christ she has found the ladder up and out. He turns around and says, who touched my clothes? Because he was aware at once that power had gone out from him. The disciples are nonplussed. Everyone is touching you. What do you mean? But imagine one person's reaction as he watches this. Jairus. He's probably practically in despair at this delay. His daughter is at the point of death, and here is Jesus talking to this nervous, trembling nobody. Jairus watches it, hoping that it will go quickly, but it doesn't. Jesus is stopping and asking, who touched me? And Jairus is thinking, who cares who touched you? Let's go. The apostles are arguing back instead of saying, let's just go save the girl. And then here comes this shaking woman 
who falls down at his feet, and the gospel says she, quotes, told him the whole truth. I'm not 100% sure what that means, but it sounds like it probably took a while. But that's how Jesus works. Your cure isn't the end of your contact with him, it's the beginning. The woman with the hemorrhage has been suffering in private, but now she has to confess to let Jesus in and be who she is out in the open. But Jairus has probably caught in that place that we have all been in, where you see someone else's good fortune and you want to be happy for them, but it's coming at the worst possible time, so you just want them to go away. And while you're also glad for them, you guess, you just want them to disappear. You just want Jesus to be on his way to your house, and all of this happens. Finally, it ends, and just then the people come up from the house and say what you've been dreading. Your daughter has died. Why trouble the teacher any longer? Imagine the sinking feeling. You have exposed yourself as a guy who's willing to turn his back on the rest of officialdom and throw yourself at Jesus's feet. And it turns out that it was all for nothing. You got the worst of both. You lost your daughter and your reputation. So let's pick up the Gospel of Mark at this point. Quote, While he was speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But ignoring what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. When they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, he saw a tumult and people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why do you make a tumult and weep? Your child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and walked, for she was 12 years old. And immediately they were overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. Well, as soon as Jairus hears that his daughter is dead, the story is over. As far as he's concerned, she's beyond help. She's dead. She has ceased to exist. There are some Jews who believe in the resurrection of the dead, but this isn't something they expect anytime soon, and most Jewish people believe that death is the end. Jesus nonetheless tells him, do not be afraid, only keep on believing, which is a very strange thing to say. When he comes to his house, The mourners are already there, weeping and wailing, carrying on the way Middle Eastern societies do when someone is dead, which is a far, far better way to behave than we do when someone has died. A far, far more honest way. He asks why they are weeping and says the little girl has not died, but she is only sleeping. But clearly she has died. He has a special meaning by sleep, as we will see. But for now, they laugh him to scorn when they hear that, and he sends them all away and brings Peter, James, and John, his three chiefs, and the girl's mother and father into the room. And this is one of those moments that is seared into the memory of the apostle Peter. Peter clearly told Mark this story since Mark was his secretary, or more likely, Mark heard him tell the story over and over again in talks and wrote it down. But Peter couldn't forget the words that Jesus said in his original language to the dead girl, Talitha kum, little girl arise. He basically told her to wake up, and she did. 
and they were overcome with amazement. You can imagine what that means. They were standing there, staring at her, frozen, unable to do anything. He tells them to get her something to eat, probably for a few reasons. One, to show that she has truly risen. For another, I think he wants the parents to snap out of it. Stop staring and exclaiming your surprise and be a mother and father to this girl. He figures asking them to do something ordinary for her might get them going, get her something to eat as a parental specialty. A third reason might be to show that she isn't just alive again, but she is cured of whatever disease killed her. She probably had lost her appetite, but now she can eat. Which brings us to a fourth reason, and the best reason of all. He told them to get her something to eat because she was really, really hungry, and he cared for her. He notices what we need, whether it be being saved from a storm, or from demons, or from death. But he also notices when we're just hungry, as we shall see again in the episode coming up about the multiplication of the loaves. Then he strictly charged them that no one should know this. Just last episode, we saw that he wanted the garrison demoniac to tell everyone what happened to him. Why is this different? Because he's on a different side of the lake. He was on the Gentile side before, but on this side of the lake, the Jewish side, announcing his miracles would lead to his death. And the time for his death was not here yet. We'll see when he is ready, when he says another guy is sleeping while also admitting that he's dead, Lazarus, and raises him from the dead also. But there's a larger issue here that I want to talk about, and that's that Jesus raising someone from the dead is an enormous deal. He's showing again that he is master of life and death. The Book of Wisdom is a Greek book of the Bible that the fathers commented on and Catholics keep as part of Scripture. It was written about 50 years before Christ, so it's a great resource about how things were seen in his days. The Book of Wisdom, which is paired with this in the Gospel reading when we hear it at Mass, says, God did not make death, and later explains, but by the envy of the devil, death entered the world, and they who belong to his company experience it. End quote. In between comes two remarkable passages where scoffers mock humanity and then mock Christ. The style of this book is kind of a dialogue between wisdom and doubt. Scoffers of wisdom reason as follows in the book, and it sounds a lot like modern-day materialism or empiricism. It says, quote, We were born by mere chance, and hereafter we should be as though we had never been. When it is extinguished, the body will turn to ashes, and the spirit will dissolve like empty air. Our name will be forgotten in time, and no one will remember our works. For our allotted time is the passing of a shadow, and there is no return from our death, because it is sealed up and no one turns back. End quote. So, wow, we are a flash in the pan between the non-existence before us and the non-existence after us. If people believed that about death, the Book of Wisdom says, they will create a new morality, then the Book of Wisdom sounds like Nietzsche as it quotes the scoffers. And let our might be our law of right, for what is weak proves itself to be useless. Let us enjoy the good things that exist and make use of the creation to the full as in youth. Let us take our fill of costly wine and perfumes. Let us crown ourselves with rosebuds before they wither. Let us oppose the righteous poor man. Let us not spare the widow. End quote. So we're getting a tour of modern notions of death and what life is like in the face of it here 50 years before Christ in the Book of Wisdom. 
Next, the scoffers turn even against Christ, who wasn't even there yet. The Book of Wisdom says, quote, The wicked say, Let us beset the just one, because he is obnoxious to us. Let us see whether his words be true. Let us find out what will happen to him. For if the just one be the Son of God, God will defend him and deliver him from the hand of his foes. With revilement and torture, let us put the just one to the test, that we may have proof of his gentleness and try his patience. Let us condemn him to a shameful death, for according to his own words, God will take care of him. End quote. Then it reaffirms what I said in the beginning, that death comes for the devil. So, we talked last week about how Satan wants us to look like animals to mar the image of God in us and remind God of how crazy his decision to honor us was. Well, death is Satan's ultimate mockery. Death is Satan's mockery of mankind for falling for his tricks. After objecting to the woman clothed with the sun, he goes after Eve. When he saw human beings given the grace of immortality, he figures he can get us to fall through our pride too, just like him, and he turns out to be absolutely right. He talks us into doing what he did, and we fall for it. We forfeit God's will in our lives here on earth, and that means forfeiting his will for our eternal life in heaven also. God did not make death, says the Book of Wisdom, uh, and makes clear that death is more than a passing on or a passing away. Saying that our souls survive our death is like saying that the shape of soap survives after soap is gone. It doesn't make any sense, and death doesn't make any sense. Death is a sign of our pact with Satan. It's unnatural, it's unchristian, and uglier than sin. Death sums up for us what refusal to listen to God looks like and shows what happens when we trust in ourselves instead of Him. Sin is an act of nihilism that is repaid in a nihilistic way. It makes us nothing, nowhere, never. Death is the ultimate triumph of Satan, who bet we would be weak and won the bet. But then God comes to the rescue. Not by overpowering the devil, exactly, but by being humble and obedient even to death on a cross. The author of life becomes subject to the mockery of death. Jesus embraces our weakness and reverses our failure. Why? Because as the Book of Wisdom says, quote, God formed man to be imperishable, the image of his own nature he made him, end quote. God joined his creation to reclaim what was his. And this cost Jesus something. As St. Paul puts it, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor. And as the gospel puts it, when the woman with the hemorrhage touches his garment, he is aware at once that power had gone out from him. Even his healing cost him something somehow. Now, receiving what Jesus offers us costs him too. He had to die to give us life, and he did. It will cost us also. Jesus and the devil are both betting on us still. The devil bets that we'll choose pride, that we'll choose to reject God, that we will want to do things our way. Jesus is betting we will choose humility and that we will choose God and want to do things his way. And he's right about Jairus. Jairus had faith that was willing to be humble and obedient. He threw caution to the wind, became shameless for Jesus, prostrating himself and sticking with Jesus even when his friends and family laughed him to scorn, telling him what he was doing was embarrassing and pointless. Are we shameless for Christ? Are we willing to be laughed at for Jesus but keep believing? Are we like the woman with the hemorrhage, sick of being unclean and compromised and ready to touch him? Do we think we will taint all that we touch, or are we ready to believe that Jesus came to make us clean? But the ultimate one risking himself here is Jesus, risking everything to bet on us, putting his own life down as his debt. 
His act of humility transformed unholy death into a place to meet him. He changed death from nihilism to Christianity. He changed death from non-existence to the temporary condition of sleep. As St. Augustine put it, when Jesus said the girl was only sleeping, he spoke the truth. She was, in a certain sense, asleep. Asleep, that is, in respect to him for whom she could be awakened. So awakening her, he restored her alive to her parents. St. Cyril of Alexandria put it, To him, being life by nature, there is nothing dead. Or as St. Jerome put it, and he put words in Jesus' mouth, To you she is dead, to me she sleepeth. So is our faith dead? Are we praying for a family member whose faith is dead? It isn't more dead than Jairus' daughter, and Jesus awakened even her. He speaks to the soul of each of us the same words, Talitha kum, I tell you arise, and his voice gives us life. Last, I want to say one thing about the woman with the hemorrhage, because she really is a model I return to again and again. Faith has never come easy for me, so I pray for it. I have even dared to pray what his apostles got in trouble for praying, Jesus, save us or we perish. Don't you care that we're dying? But more often than not, I simply try to take the place of the woman with the hemorrhage. I get why Jesus isn't stopping for me. I'm wounded. I'm not like Jairus. I'm not the official that he prioritizes. I'm the woman with the hemorrhage. Jesus is marching off to a very important appointment. He's going to raise a girl from the dead for Jairus and for the crowds. I totally understand that he doesn't have time for me. But you know what? I have no choice. So I interrupt him. At first, the woman can't even pray to Jesus. She can only mutter to herself, if I can only touch his garments, I can be well. Her faith is weak like mine. It's basically the faith that comes from the process of elimination, like mine. Nothing else is worth hoping in, so maybe Jesus is. Jesus doesn't give her any good feelings or pay any special attention to her. He doesn't look at her, beckon her, or fist bump her, or rush off to her house like he does for the official. He just passes her by. He doesn't look like a savior to her. He looks like a retreating figure in a crowd, a crowd of other people, other priorities, other interests. She knows she doesn't deserve any different, but she dares to push forward anyway. I can see her pushing through the crowd, making dozens unclean, but who cares? She pushes through and then lunges at him, refusing to let him walk away from her. He stops. He turns. It works. She discovers that he is real and that her contact with him, her intentional, insistent contact, is real also. He stops and sees her, encounters her, and changes her. It can change you, too. This is what Jesus does. He heals. If you don't believe me, try it. Insist on it. Lunge at him. Get up before dawn and go to the tabernacle or just drop to your knees in your room. Tell Jesus, don't you dare pass me by. I don't care what you have to do that's so important. You didn't make me to be unclean. You didn't make me to live a second-rate life. You didn't make me to bleed out through a dark secret hemorrhage. You made me in your image. You promised me a relationship. You promised me grace and glory. Here I am. Stop walking away from me right now. Turn around and deal with me. Trust me, he will answer. And it won't be a quick answer. He will ask you what you are looking for and you will tell him. And then he'll call your bluff and say, no, really, I want to hear the truth. What is it that's bothering you? And trembling like the woman, you will tell him. And he will tell you that the wound needn't trouble you anymore. That you'll have to stay close by him, but the wound won't trouble you anymore. 
and you'll be ecstatic with joy. And it will take a lifetime for him to show you how to move outside the prison of yourself and join him in the wide open road of his extraordinary story. The Extraordinary Story is written by Tom Hoops and produced by Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Benedictine College is transforming culture in America through our mission of community, faith, and scholarship. If you enjoy this podcast, please follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Help us tell others about The Extraordinary Story. Visit us at benedictine.edu.